0: PTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee.
1: I saw a picture today of David Duchovny on a picket line, which it's like this sort of stuff really helps bring these ideas about class struggle and raising class consciousness into the public consciousness.
2: So when a multi-billionaire tells me my union's demands are unreasonable, from the deck of a $400 million yacht? I'm not seeing that. I'm not not gonna say I'm angry, but I'm not seeing the logic behind that statement. I find it very hypocritical.
3: You know, it's not the General Motors anymore, or even the Walmarts. These are the people who really are gonna control our futures in, in, in so many ways.
4: You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, we've got four reports on the week-old strike by 160,000 actors. First up, from Building Bridges Radio, writers and actors fight back against AI. Then, on the work stoppage podcast, Class Struggle in Hollywood. Then, we have two local reports. On the Labor Heritage Power Hour, formerly Your Rights at Work, we'll hear from Elliot Bales. He's a striking SAG-AFTRA member in the metro D.C. area. Then we'll head to the Midwest, where the Heartland Labor Forum talked with Shelley Wagner, president of the SAG-AFTRA Local in Missouri. Our bonus track today deals with another epic labor battle from back in the day. The year was 1878.
5: That was the day that a new song was introduced to the U.S. labor movement. Reverend Jesse H. Jones set the lyrics of a poem that had been written by I.G. Blanchard more than a decade earlier. The song was called The Eight Hour Day.
4: That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show.
0: I'm Mimi Rosenberg. I'm Ganesh. And we're building bridges. First up, the Writers Guild of America, joined by SAG-AFTRA, on strike. For their lives and livelihoods.
4: Let's hear from Fran Dresser, the president of SAG AFTRA, announcing the screen actors' strike as they join with their sibling unions, the Writers Guild of America, 11,000 workers who have been on strike since May 2nd.
0: What happens here is important because what's happening to us is happening across all fields of labor by means of when employers make Wall Street and greed their priority and they forget about the essential contributors that make the machine run. We have a problem. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI, is a moment of history that is a moment of truth if we don't stand tall right now we are all going to be in trouble we are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business at some point you have to say no we're not going to take this anymore you people are crazy why are you doing this Privately, they all say we're the center of the wheel. Everybody else tinkers around our artistry, but actions speak louder than words. And there was nothing there. It was insulting. You cannot change the business model as much as it has changed and not expect the contract to change too. We're not going to keep doing incremental changes on a contract that no longer honors what is happening right now with this business model that was foisted upon us. What are we doing? Moving around furniture on the Titanic? It's crazy. So the jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect and to be honored for our contribution. You share the wealth because you cannot exist without us. Thank you. And you were listening to President of sag Fran Dresser.
4: Hamilton Nolan is a labor writer for Indies Times. He has spent the last decade writing about labor and politics for Gawker, Splinter the Guardian and elsewhere. Much of his work is on Substack. Well, Hamilton should Hollywood be careful about what it wishes for. Can we the writers and actors stop AI from cannibalizing our jobs?
0: And thanks for joining us Hamilton
1: Nolan.
4: Well, thank you for having me. Um I think the answer
1: is yes, we can and um the time is now to do it and the strikes that are happening in Hollywood uh, first, the WGA and now SAG are essentially the the first attempt by uh, working people to really build protections um, for all of us surrounding the use of AI. And an interesting thing about AI is is that it is coming on so fast that you see uh, changes at a speed and at a scale that that we haven't seen with uh, technologies before. And I think um, the urgency that you're seeing uh, with these strikes is partly because we all know that if we don't build some protections around AI right now, uh, by the time the next contract rolls around, it might be too late for all of us. I'm Mimi
0: Rosenberg. I'm Kinesh. And we're building bridges.
6: Welcome to Work Stoppage, everybody, your favorite labor podcast. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It really does go a long way towards keeping the show going. The wait is over now, and on Wednesday, July 12th, the contract between the 160,000 actors and the studios represented by the AMPTP expired, sending the workers to the picket lines. This is the first time the writers and actors have been on strike at the same time since 1960. Your parents don't even remember this. You have to ask <laughs> a granddad about this one. <laughs> it, it, it,
1: for reference, although many of our listeners have probably heard this stat because it, it's the one that everybody loves to throw out there, uh, the last time the writers and the actors were on strike, the president of SAG AFTRA was Ronald Reagan. Yep. I, I did see a little bit about that,
6: but also <laughs>
1: I also read that the vice president did all of the work and Ronald Reagan yes. just took all the credit. Yeah. Yes, he was also serving as a uh, snitch at yeah. that time. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, No credit whatsoever to him, but full credit to all of the other actors. But yeah, no, I mean, obviously this is like the big story. Everybody, everybody was very excited last week, appropriately so, especially because the strike kind of started with a bang because we had SAG after president, Fran Drescher, who announced the strike at a fucking fire press conference (laughs) where she just laid into the studio bosses for refusing to take... The issues that the writers and the actors because there was constant discussion of the solidarity which was also amazing but just the failure to take those issues seriously and and the continued attempts to portray the actors and writers as out of touch and to dismiss their concerns and so she really went after them. and so we're going to actually you know include a clip here from her opening
0: i cannot believe it quite frankly how far apart we are on so many things how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right, when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. We stand in solidarity, in unprecedented unity, Our union and our sister unions and the unions around the world are standing by us, as well as other labor unions, because at some point the jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and
1: dishonored. I think one of the things that's been so great to see is that they have been really explicit in tying their struggle to all the other labor struggles going on right now, not just the writers, but also specifically the Teamsters and the UPS workers. There's been all sorts of discussions of solidarity. The writers and the actors even sent members out to UPS Teamster practice pickets uh, over the last few days, which has been fantastic to see. So it's been the other thing, though, that I think that is really important to underline about, uh, Fran Drescher's introductory, like her press conference announcing the strike, but also just more broadly with the SAG after strike, is how powerful it is to have the most famous workers in the country, actors, you know, out on the picket lines talking about class struggle. I saw a picture today of David Duchovny on a picket line, which it's like this sort of stuff really helps bring these ideas about class struggle and raising class consciousness into the public consciousness, which I think is something very significant about this strike. Yeah, did TMZ turn into a labor paper or something like that? (laughs) Yeah. I saw a
6: really great photo of uh, Nathan uh, Fielder with his picket sign, and they were like, Nathan for us. Yeah. (laughs) Nailed it, guys.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I've seen so many. I mean, Bob Odenkirk's been out on, like, the WGA line for mm-hmm. weeks now. And so now like he's been out there with so many other people on, on with SAG, it's been fantastic. And you know, the actors are fighting for a lot of the same things that the writers are fighting for. We, they, they, they share a lot of the same issues, uh, specifically of course, pay raises for the lowest paid workers is, is really prominent for both sides because again, most of these folks are required to live and work in either Los Angeles or New York. Not everybody. Of course, SAG-AFTRA and WGA represent workers all across the country, not just in those cities. But folks who have to live in those cities to work have to pay the ridiculous cost of living in the two, like, two of the top most expensive cities in the world, much less the country. And so, with the the pay rates that the vast majority of the actors who aren't Tom Cruise or like uh, Cillian Murphy or Timothy Chalamet, who's bringing in millions of dollars for a role, like most workers, actors are out there working twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year, maybe sixty thousand if they're doing okay. Well, like,
6: like, even even your favorite B-listers probably don't crack six figures. Like, do you think Brett Gilman makes hundred thousand dollars a year? Not that likely.
1: Yeah, and and so that's obviously one of the big things, and and so one of the other big ones, and this was also true for writers, but this is probably the one issue aside from AI that I think has gotten the most press because some of the numbers that have come out of it are ridiculous which is how residuals get paid. Basically, once you've done the work, you film the show or 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 a movie and it's gone out there, you've gotten your initial pay for that work, but you know, of course, the studios are putting these things on for streaming, whether it be on cable streaming on Netflix, on whatever, all the billion different streaming services. And they're making money from those subscriptions. And so you're supposed to be getting a residual. uh, You know, uh, you're supposed to continue to get paid because they're profiting off of your work. But, of course, the studios have gamed this system for years, especially the studios involved in so-called new media. Uh, to the point where you have so many of these workers, these actors, who get paid basically nothing <laughs> in residuals, I mean, like one of the, the starkest ones that I, I saw shown out there was actress uh, Kimiko Glenn, who was a, one of the like main actresses in Orange is the New Black," which was a mega hit for mm-hmm. Netflix. It was a huge like selling uh, point for them. It was something that moved a lot of subscriptions for them. Honestly. And- I don't watch a lot of stuff, but I did watch that show. Yeah. And, and she posted a, like a picture of a check of a residual check. She got for a grand total in 2020. Cause people may say, well, it's been a few years since that show was on. This is in 2020. Everybody was watching fucking streaming because it's the beginning of COVID. And it was, you know, several years ago. And so orange is the new black was slightly like newer. So you would think you're going to get some residuals during a period. Everyone is, is either stuck at home or they're labeled as an essential worker. She got a grand total of $27.30 in residuals for the entire year of 2020. That's a made... multi-season show. Yeah, mm-hmm. they
6: really copied their notes from Spotify on this one, didn't they? <laughs>
1: yes. A hundred percent. It's ridiculous. We want to thank
6: everyone for listening. Go to workstoppagepod.com for all of those links. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. Solidarity.
1: Solidarity, everybody.
0: Rolling! We come marching, marching. We're standing proud and tall.
4: The rising
0: of the women means the rising of the soul. No more.
4: All right, welcome, everybody, to the Labor Heritage Power Hour. I'm Chris Garlock here with Elise Bryant.
0: But she... Glories, bread and roses, bread and roses.
4: Our first guest today is actor and SAG-AFTRA member Elliot Bales. Thank you for joining us. I was looking at your your resume, and you're clearly an actor. You've got stage sc- and screen credits, but uh, you did not start out as an actor. You did 26 years somewhere else. Tell us about that.
2: I, I did. I, I actually started off in the theater. I uh, I went to college on a uh, U.S. Army ROTC scholarship, uh, and my degree undergraduate degree was in communications and theater, and. Um, I had planned to do four years do my four-year commitment and uh, return to the theater and 26 years later that's exactly what <laughs> so uh, I I spent 26 years in the United States Army as an officer uh, retired in 2010 and uh after a brief stint in the corporate world um and getting laid off from a fortune 500 company so I already have a little a little uh a, a, a little irritation with CEOs um that uh, I I uh, I, I got a chance, and the doors opened after I got laid off, along with twenty thousand other employees, at that time, uh, to uh, to go to work uh, in the theater, uh, and then uh, and then that's just kind of taken off and and given me a chance to to, uh, to to fight the battles in a different way. One of the things that I think has been most disturbing to me as an individual is that every headline begins with Hollywood has done X. Mm-hmm. And Hollywood, and it's interesting always that most of these media companies are owned by the same conglomerates that we're negotiating against. So many of the headlines and stories that you're going to see, you know, there's a couple of bunch of ABC news stories that have come out. Well, who's ABC owned by? They're owned by Disney, who is one of the <laughs> top 12, you know, uh, 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 grossing companies in the associate Alliance and Motion Picture and Television Producers, as, as I refer to them, the evil empire or the AMPTP. Um and uh so the there's just a couple of things that are you know factors that are i think help to explain that uh to qualify for our sag after a health plan um you have to make $26,000 a year $26,800 that's not a lot of revenue that's not a, that's not a big job 87% of our members don't qualify wow. for that healthcare mm-hmm. um so when a multi-billionaire tells me my union's demands are unreasonable from this, the deck of a four hundred million dollar yacht, uh-huh,
0: uh-huh.
2: I'm not seeing that. Uh-huh. I'm not I'm, I'm not gonna say I'm angry, but I'm not seeing the logic behind that statement. I find it very hypocritical. Goodbye
6: to my one, goodbye, Rosalita
4: of The Labor Heritage Power Hour is produced by me, Chris Garlock, and engineered by Mike Nisella and Kalia Chapman, here on WPFW 89.3 FM, your station for jazz and justice. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you all next week.
3: You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. this is Judy Ansel. We're devoting the news tonight to an interview with Shelley Wagoner, who is the president of the Missouri Valley Local of the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television Radio Artists, which they call SAG-AFTRA. Welcome Shelley. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us, who is Shelley Wagner besides president of, of this local that covers Missouri?
7: Well, I am an actor by trade, and I started my career in Los Angeles, and I grew up here in Missouri, went to to Los Angeles and worked for several years. And then um, when I got married and had a child, I came back to Missouri to my roots to raise my child because I did not want to raise him in Los Angeles at the time. Uh, but I was able to still continue to work in Los Angeles, so I'd go back and forth when when need to. Um, then I got involved with um, Union service, uh, which is volunteer. Um, Everybody who's in office is volunteer and we help with union um, policies and members with uh, issues they may have on set or um, with pay or that kind of thing. Um, We're also very uh, active in helping to bring production to our locals um, and things like that. So um, we're important because SAG-AFTRA is a member led union. So we are all important in what our voices are and what we have to say and what we need out of our contracts. And that is what we are doing right now in our negotiations, or we're in negotiations, we're on strike now, um, to uh, get better contracts. So our contracts expire every three years. So this is our um, year to do that. And it's a very important year because there's been a lot of development in Um, the world with AI and things like that, that are not currently addressed in our contracts that we want them to be addressed now.
3: Okay, great. And uh, are there any movies we might recognize you in or TV
7: shows? Yes. I was in the Oscar nominated winter's bone. Mm I was with with Jennifer Lawrence. I was also in the last movie star with Burt Reynolds. I've done uh, several TV uh, shows when I was in Los Angeles. Uh, So there's a lot you'd probably recognize me from. Okay, great. You know, I think a lot of people think that you guys
3: make a lot of money, too, you know, but I'm I'm sure not all actors make as much as, say, a Meryl Streep or something like that. No. What's the average? Do you have any idea what the average income is of a SAG-AFTRA member?
7: It's, it's, it's lower than you might think. It's, you know, very few uh, actors in our union are at that top point where they can negotiate, you know, millions of dollars for their uh, contract. Most of us work on what we call scale, which is the contract and the contract, you know, pays anywhere from, you know, depending on the contract that you're working on, because we have lower budget contracts to the high budget contracts, it's anywhere from 150 to $1,000 a day for your time. And you're working anywhere from two to four weeks at a time. So it's not a lot because we're not constantly working right? right we're we're doing maybe a project or two a year so it's and a lot of us can't even qualify for our pension and health because we don't make enough money to do right, so
3: right i heard that over half of your members do not make what is it $26,000 a year which yeah. you need to do to to qualify for the pension and health plan.
7: yes and that's that's half of 180,000 so that's a lot of people who aren't making uh, health and pension and so it is very and it is very much um people think that everybody at is Actor makes money because we have some, we have those top 10%, 20% people that are making, you know, $20 million a picture, which isn't everybody.
3: Robert Reich just published an article and he he said that this is a strike that is going to be extremely important for all types of workers in the 21st century. He says that you're dealing with the mega giants and corporations of the 21st century. You know, it's not the General Motors anymore or even the Walmarts. These are the people who really are going to control our futures in, in, in so many ways. And this issue of AI is is part of it. And he says there's a huge imbalance of power. What do you see the stakes as? Is, do you agree with him?
7: I, I totally agree. And I, I feel like a lot of people don't know how to make that jump or that leap to understand because they think it's always just film. It doesn't affect us. But we are lucky enough to be in an industry where we have the voice, to be able to stand up against this, because if we if we lose, AI is going to take over so many jobs in so many industries, and it will affect a lot of people. So we are trying to do our best to make sure that um, we do kind of keep a lid on it as much as we can, because you are correct that this is these are the same companies, these digital companies, they kind of run everything now. It's not like it used to be. And these people have a lot of power out there.
3: How long do you think it's going to last, or how long do you think it can last? Let me just quote my friend Harold Phillips, a, a member of your union. He says, uh, We're prepared to last a
7: really long time because we're all used to starving. Yes. Uh, Exactly, and they've trained us for that for a long time. I had another member the other day say to me, you know i'm 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 okay because I've already had a second job. We've already been trained that we have to have a second job if we want to survive. So most of us are able to last a while because we do have other things that that keep us uh, in our homes and fed and that sort of thing. So yeah, we are prepared to last for a while. I think it'll at least be through the end of the year, if not longer, but it's definitely not going to be a short one.
3: How long do you think the industry can last? Have they stockpiled programs and movies?
7: I think they have a little bit, but not a lot. So they'll start feeling the crunch and subscribers probably, well, it's the streaming probably won't feel it for just a little bit. Now, when the fall season comes out and there's nothing new on TV, that's when they'll start hearing from people who are watching it and the fans going, when is my stuff coming back? So they'll start feeling it in the fall. Now, whether or not we'll be able to go back into negotiations, then I don't know. Well, it just remains to be seen. They seem to think that they can uh, do this without us. And if they wanna, they're trying to get rid of all the creatives right now. And that's that's the big battle. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, I wish you luck. We're
3: talking to Shelley Wagner. President of the Missouri Valley, local of uh, SAG AFTRA.
7: Thanks so much, Shelley. Thank you so much.
5: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1878. That was the day that a new song was introduced to the U.S. labor movement. Reverend Jesse H. Jones set the lyrics of a poem that had been written by I.G. Blanchard more than a decade earlier. The song was called The Eight-Hour Day. The fight for eight hours had become one of the central causes of labor. In 1850, the average work week was 70 hours. This meant that workers had little time for anything else beside their daily toil. After the Civil War, calls for the eight-hour day gained momentum. It became a movement that united workers from different workplaces and backgrounds. Eight-hour leagues were formed in cities across the nation. They hosted talks and rallies to spread the word about the need to shorten the work week. At rallies, protesters waved eight-hour banners. They also sang the song that became their anthem. The first verse boldly began, We mean to make things over, We are tired of toil for naught, With but bare enough to live upon, And never an hour for thought. We want to feel the sunshine, We want to smell the flowers, We are sure that God has willed it, And we mean to have eight hours. We're summoning our forces from the shipyard, shop and mill. Eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. The eight hour day song continues to be reimagined today, including this version by Rhythm Fest. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show.
4: That is it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. These were clips from just five of the nearly 200 labor radio and podcast shows that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can find the shows you heard today wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for them by name. Building Bridges Radio, Work Stoppage, Labor Heritage Power Hour, and Heartland Labor Forum. We've got links to all 200 of the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.